When I see um, pictures of different events, I sometimes try to picture being there and what it must have uh, been like to be able to listen in, just to be able to listen in, not even to participate, but just to just to hear, just to listen. Uh, you know, like the Continental Congress when they were uh, working on the Declaration of Independence. This was a huge thing for them. They were declaring independence from their country. It would be like you know, half of our country seceding and uh, declaring their, to be their own country. Uh, it's just a, a huge thing that, that would have gone on. Some of the discussions and some of, some of the things that went back and forth. And I was wondering, thinking too about when Grant and, um, and Lee at the surrender at Appomattox and I think they talked to each other with respect and dignity. I think they spoke to each other as, as uh, not just fellow combatants, but um, men of, uh, of the same country, but with different viewpoints. And I thought, oh, how interesting it must have been. Or George Washington's inauguration. This is the first time it's done. I mean, who came up with what they were going to say? You know, I mean, we, you know, we have it now because they did it then. But this was the first time. I could just imagine some of the discussion together of what do you think ought to say. Well, you know, I think because they weren't even sure what a president really was. They were used to a king. In fact, by the time we got to the end of his um, presidency, they really kind of wanted to make him king. So this whole idea of what a president is, you know, was just a whole new thing for them. And then every once in a while I wonder about things like, what was the thinking and the discussion that went on when they opened the first oyster? <laughs> first of all, why would you open it? I guess I could see why you would, why you would open it. But, you know, this guy opens it up and says... Would you look at this snotty thing? And then his friend standing next to him says, I think I'll eat that. Yeah. What? I mean, uh, um, I was reading an article about John Glenn's uh, ride into space, his first flight that took place in 1962. For him, you can say first flight because he did it again when uh, he was an old guy. I don't remember. How old was he, Ralph? He was old. Anyway, um, you know, when he, when he went in 1962, and I was reading this article, and it gave an itinerary of the day, which I found very interesting. It talked about, you know, what, what he had done, and the day before the launch, what he had done. And it mentioned that he had talked to his wife and children before going to bed that night. And I thought, boy, I wonder what they said, knowing that he was hours away of being strapped into a tin can, on the top of a rocket filled with kerosene and liquid oxygen uh, made up of thousands and thousands of parts all provided by the lowest bidder. Um, 
it was an interesting article, though, because it went on and it, it, it gave more details than I've ever read about this flight before. And it was like being able to listen in. They gave some of the conversations between uh, between John Glenn and and the space command people. And it was interesting. And some of the things that I never knew, it talked about how much he had to... Um, intervene in the actual flying of that capsule as it went around around the world because they had they had trouble with it and um they when they got to the the third lap they said hey let's do one more i mean really that's how the discussion went i think we could do one more and so they went around another time you know and some of the discussion that went on there and it was just it was so interesting to me uh, to read that and it just it was kind of like listening in on on what they were doing um we have the great blessing of having a, a record of some of the conversations Jesus had with people. You know, they're recorded in the Bible. And last week we began looking at what I told you I believe is, you know, as Jesus prays is really just a conversation with his Father, a conversation really between the Trinity, as the Spirit was there as well. And, you know, just hours before his crucifixion, Let's pray, and we're going to turn to that passage once again. Father, thank you that we can have a conversation with you. Now we always think of this really as a, almost as a monologue where when, when we pray, but we need to listen. So open our ears to be able to hear you. Open our ears to be able to understand. Open our heart to be able to be even more transformed by you, more connected with you. As we look into your word, it's powerful, it's effective. We've seen that in our lives. We read it in your word. That's how you intended it to be. So we pray that the intent of your word might touch our hearts and lives today. That we would know that we've spent time with you, Lord. Not just here in this hour, but something that will continue as we leave this place too. We pray with thanks in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 17, page 996, as I mentioned to you last week, when I think of the Lord's Prayer, this is the prayer I think about. Uh, in, in the 17th chapter of John, his, he is, this is after the, uh, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. These are, all, these are all together, all, you know, this same evening with Christ as he had the Last Supper with his with his. Uh, closest uh, uh, disciples those 11 12 he started with of his closest disciples and it's interesting even in hard to fathom that uh, judas was considered one of the closest disciples and yet uh, he's the one who betrayed him well anyway last week we looked at the first five verses didn't get any further than that jesus has a discussion with the father and uh, some of the realities um, and implications regarding the fact that his hour had now come uh, previous to this, John had said, oh, had said repeatedly that his hour had not come. His hour had not come. And then in chapter 12, we see a transition begin. Chapter 12 is that, that last week of his, of his life. And, and 13 goes right into the last, uh, the last day, the last 24 hours. And we're, we're told then repeatedly that his hour, his time uh, had come. Uh, in verse 6 is where we're going to start today. Jesus begins... Uh, discussing 
with God the Father, um, where the disciples are at as this hour had come. The hour had come and there's going to be a huge change. And he's discussing with the Father where his disciples were at. We don't live in isolation. Uh, What goes on in our lives affects those closest to us. What goes on in the lives of those closest to us affects us. When Ginny and I pray for for you and and, and others we know as well, um, you know, and when we know particularly that you're facing tough times, we pray not only for the person who, you know, the individual who is facing the tough times, we also pray for your family because we know it takes a toll on them as well. It's you, you can't, you know, you can't watch your, you know, your spouse suffer and not be affected. You can't watch your parents battle things and and not be impacted. Um, that's an important thing. So Jesus knew what he was facing. Uh, he knew his his disciples would be deserting him in a matter of hours. Uh, he knew Peter was going to deny him three times. That he told Peter this. Uh, he knew that he was going to be beaten and abused by the Roman soldiers. Uh, he knew people were going to reject him and demand that he be crucified. He knew that the crowd would pick Barabbas to be released and send him to be condemned. Uh, He knew that he was going to be severely flogged. He knew that he was going to be nailed to a cross. He knew he was going to be separated from God the Father when he became sin for us and our sin. He knew that people would ridicule him as he hung on the cross. And he knew that all of this would also have an effect on his disciples and it would take a toll on his disciples. So he prayed for them. Now we get to listen in as he prays, listen in to Jesus' side of the discussion within the Trinity as he begins to focus on his disciples. We're going to look at this a verse or two at a time, so follow along and then keep your Bible or your app open, whatever it is. Uh, Verse 6, John chapter 17, verse 6, I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They are yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, in in this verse here, Jesus makes, you know, has made God known among the people. But when he says here, I have revealed your name, some very specific incidents came to my mind. Now, to the Jewish people, and remember, his disciples who were there came from this this group. His disciples came from the Jewish people. And among them, there was a name for God that carried weight and identified God as God. Uh, the name I Am. Now, that it goes all the way back to Exodus when Moses was trying to get out of uh, going back to Egypt to face the Pharaoh, you know, and he... It wasn't wasn't high on his agenda of things he wanted to do. He was kind of real happy with the settled down life he had. So as Moses is discussing with God in Exodus 3, it says, And Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, 
The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Now, Yahweh, you know, that, that's their most personal and holy name for God. So much so that they, they wouldn't even pronounce it out loud. Uh, and when they, when they wrote it, they really wrote it without vowels. Now, the vowels we have in there are the vowels for Adonai, um, for Lord, that they put in with the, 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 the letters that they put in for Yahweh, which, because they didn't want his name spoken. And now, you know, connected to it as a name that describes who he is. He says, tell them, I am has sent you. Uh, you know, the self-existent one. You know, I am. Now, Jesus used that name, I am, about himself when he talked to people. A uh, very direct claim to be God, connected to God, part of God, being God himself. In John chapter 5, it says, uh, but Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am, <clears throat> I am working also. Now we look and we see that just as part of the sentence, but the Jews understood it a different way. Because the very next verse, uh, or two verses later, we read, says this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes, to the Father, who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now again, the Jews understood what he was saying. He says, therefore, the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, who came from, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? And then Jesus emphasized the point a little bit more, uh, a little bit later, a couple of verses later, a few verses later. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone who may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And, you know, they were getting a little confused he goes on in this discussion he tells me he says i know him because i am from him and he sent me now again they understood this claim because it says the very next verse that they tried they tried to seize him probably the clearest claim comes in a discussion uh, that jesus had that's recorded in john chapter 8 we're going to look a, just a little bit broader here in this one john chapter 8 it says the jews answered him are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not speak of my own glory. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I, <clears throat> I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? In their mind, they knew the answer to this was no. In their mind, no one was greater than Abraham. Abraham was the greatest patriarch they had. 
and no one was going to be greater than him. They were asking a question, but really by asking this question, they were making a statement of an answer that you are not greater than Abraham. He says, are you greater than our father Abraham, Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Why do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. <laughs> I just love the way he talks to him sometimes. Uh, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And here is where he makes the most direct claim to them out of, out of all of them, I think, in, in the scripture there. He says, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Again, they expected the answer was no. They were asking a question, but really making a statement. You have not seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Meaning wanting to stone him to death. You know, wanting to kill him for his claim to be God. You know, in, in revealing either the Father's name to them, he revealed his connection with the Father and the reality. You know, the reality that he is God. He wasn't beating around the bush with him here. He was being very clear. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> And while he revealed it to the world, uh, only some received him as Christ. Only some received him as God himself. Now, John often uses the word world in a very specific way. He uses it to, to describe those people and systems that oppose God and that reject God. Um, you know, and specifically, that reject Jesus as God. He uses it he uses it this way quite often. Now he also uses it as the world created in its people. As you read the context, the context helps us to understand which meaning is used. Uh, so when we read in John 3:16, uh, for God so loved the world, uh, that God loved the world this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What we're reading here is that God has a great love for all of the created world, which includes even those who reject and deny him, the world, those who reject and deny him. And that love motivated God to reach out to those who reject him by God coming, you know, and the, the Son of God coming to give his life for sin, uh, to redeem sinful man to a holy God. He came and gave his life as sin to, re, to redeem sinful man to a holy God. That was, what he was, that was what he was doing. That is how, part of how he was revealing himself and what motivated him uh, to, to reach out to man who needed that redemption, who needed that that uh, forgiveness of sin. And here in John 17, what we've been looking at, Jesus is saying that his disciples are from the world, some of those who rejected God, and they have now believed. They have changed their mind. They have repented. You see, they have repented of rejecting God and have come to him. 
They've come into a relationship with him as Christ and God, and they have, they have entered eternal life because they now have this relationship with, with Christ. They have this relationship with God there. Uh, the sincerity of their commitment there is seen, notice what it says there, because they have kept your word. That shows the, that shows the sincerity of their commitment. Because a real commitment to Jesus, a real commitment, uh, you know, to Christ Jesus will not be hidden. It will not be hidden. There is no such thing as a secret disciple. Now, what may come to your mind is when, uh, when after Jesus was crucified and they came to bury him and it said that Joseph of Arimathea was there who was a secret disciple. But what was he doing? He was there very publicly, going to Pontius Pilate, asking for the body, very publicly, taking that body down and removing it. He was no longer a secret disciple. Someone who really has a commitment to Christ, there is no such thing as a secret disciple because it, it will not be hidden. You know, it will not be hidden. You live out whatever you are committed to. Whatever you're committed to, you are living out. You, know, you, you, you may not like some of that, but you need to realize it. You are living out what you're committed to. People know who or what you are committed to by the way you live your life. By the way you live your everyday life, people know what you're committed to. You want a scary moment? Ask your neighbor who they believe you are committed to or what you're committed to. Ask your coworker. Ask your coworker. You know, who or what would you say I'm committed to? I don't want to hurt your feelings, but be ready for an answer you may not like. We live out who we're committed to. You know, we, we, we live that out. It won't be hidden. It can't be hidden. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 and 8. Now they know that all things that you have given me are from you because the words that you gave me I have given them. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. You see, the disciples here, they came to know and to realize this intimate connection here between Jesus and God the Father. Between God the Son and God the Father. They came to see this. They came to know about this intimate connection here. They came to understand that it resulted in Jesus giving them the very words of God. That he was giving them those words. They didn't yet fully understand, uh, you know, the connection. But Thomas's response after seeing Jesus uh, after the resurrection, uh, it shows that they knew that Jesus was was more than a man of God. Uh, that they he, that he was more than a prophet. Jesus had appeared to his some of his disciples after the resurrection, and after one, at one of the appearances, they uh, came and they. Um, 
as he appeared to them, Thomas, we're told Thomas wasn't there. Well, then when Thomas is told about it, he's a bit reluctant to believe without seeing for himself, you know, and that's where we get this doubting Thomas, you know, idea. Uh, but he wanted to see it for himself. He wanted to, he wanted, he says, unless I, unless I can put my fingers in the wound in his hands and put my hand in the wound in his side, I'm not, I'm not going to believe. So eight days later, uh, Jesus came to the disciples again and we're told Thomas was with them. And Jesus shows Thomas the wounds in his side and his hands. And he told Thomas to stop doubting and believe. And Thomas's response shows us that they knew he was more than a man of God. They knew he was more than a prophet. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You see, they were getting to the point, had gotten to the point where they realized he was more than just a man of God. He was more than simply a, a prophet. And Thomas and the rest of the disciples, they grew in their knowledge of God as time went on. They grew in their knowledge of Jesus as time went on. You know, true belief, true belief means you're going to continue to grow in your knowledge of God. You're going to continue to grow in your understanding of who he is. The disciples didn't understand it all, but they knew that Jesus is the Christ and unique in his standing with God and as God. And they were grappling with that in their minds, and they continued to grow in that. We see that unfold through the rest of the New Testament. We see that unfold in the epistles, and we see that unfold, you know, in their letters as they as they wrote. And you could see that deepening in understanding. Pick up verse nine and ten. He says, "I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours." Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I have been glorified in them. Now, Jesus is is specifying that what he is praying for now is his apostles, the, the apostles that are right there with him, his disciples, those who are committed to him and tasked with the message of, of the task of carrying on the message of Christ. And he's praying specifically for them. Now, here again, you see Jesus is making a distinction between those who have a relationship with him and those who reject him, those who reject God, those who are choosing opposition to God. He says, I am not praying for the world. He says, those who are rejecting him. He says, well, what I'm doing now, he says, I'm praying for those you have given me. Having a relationship with Jesus is having a relationship with every member of the Trinity. Notice what it said. You know, you can't you can't speak you can't speak to one without speaking to the others. You know, you can't you know what you do to one you do to the others. What you say to one you say to all. He says, "Those you have given me, notice because they are yours, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine." That connection is real. It is vital. He says, and, and there is that equality there, uh, you know, that is, that is there that he is revealing and, and unfolding to them more and more. And you see part of it here. Now, don't overlook the phrase at the end of verse 10, though. He says, I have been glorified in them. That we glorify God is an odd concept to us. Uh, you know, what does it mean that Jesus Christ is glorified in his followers? Uh, somebody called me last week and, and was asking me about it. And it's an odd concept for us to try to grasp a hold of. You know, how is it that we, how can we ever glorify God? A good way for us to understand that is that we honor God. You know, we glorify Him when we, when we honor God. 
uh, more fully, you know, that, that we honor God, we draw attention to him, not to ourselves, you see. I think there's a big distinction of honor when you honor God and you honor God and you are drawing attention to him. You know, we honor him and draw attention to who he is, you know, to who he is as well as his holiness, his perfection, his love. This is, is, is how we glorify God. We, we draw attention to him. We draw attention to who he is. We draw not to ourselves. We draw to attention to his holiness, not our actions. We draw attention to his perfection, not the fact that we may have gotten something right. We draw attention to the reality of his love, not the nice thing that we're doing. But the attention is drawn to him. You know, that's living distinct from the world, which does not have a relationship with him. When he's talking about, you know, that we are, we're in the world, but not of it. This is what he's talking about. We are living in the world, in the creation there, but we are not of it. We are not part of those that reject him. Because what we do is we draw attention to him, who he is, his holiness, his perfection, his love. By that we glorify God. You know, and as as his people, we live that life that honors God, not one that honors the world. There's a distinction. And we live as one who honors God, not one who honors the world. A life that shows our relationship to him, our commitment to him, not a commitment to the world, meaning that part that is opposed to him. And there's a difference, a distinction there. Let's look at these last couple of verses, 11 and 12. It says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And here's where you see that distinction where he's talking about the world is that, that, that created all that that is created there. Uh, Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name so that, that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now Jesus is clearly stating that he's going to leave this world, this created world. Uh, this, the disciples were, were, weren't really totally catching on to this yet, but it was going to happen whether they caught on to it or not. He was, re, he was leaving this created world. He was returning to his place with God the Father. And the disciples would remain behind in the created world. So Jesus talks with the Father about their protection here. In the, you know, in this created world exists that world system that rejects and even repudiates God. This is where it exists, you know, and it can be tough to be the only one standing for God. It can be tough to the only one to be the only one standing for truth when society doesn't care or when society pushes an ungodly agenda. I struggle, I don't struggle, I get aggravated with people who believe that they can go and just live and do everything that, um, that is acceptable in the world because, they, as they say, they need to identify with them. You need to identify with Jesus Christ in this world that rejects him. You may be the odd duck sometimes. 
Because it's not always easy. It's not always easy to stand for God and what God, what God says and who God is. But it's important that we do that. And this is what, he, what he's talking about there. These disciples are going to be left in a world that pushes an ungodly agenda, that rejects God, that rejects who he is. And he prays that they may be strong and that, that they may stand. You know, and, and it's tough. But when it's tough is when it's the most necessary to stand for him. When it's tough is when it's the most necessary to stand for him and for his truth. It's easy, you know, it's, it's easy to, to, st- to stand for him in truth when, you know, when, it, when what the world wants just happens to be in line, you know, with what God says. And that does happen, you know. I mean, generally the world's against murder, you know, and for us to be able to stand against that, you know, it's, uh, you know, generally the world's against, uh, you know, violence. Uh, I know there's some parts that aren't, but, see, don't you don't focus on that. Generally, people... And it's easy then to stand, you know, against those things. But when it's most necessary is when the world takes a stand that flies in the face of all that God says. And to be able to stand and say, no, this isn't right. But that's when it's most necessary to stand for the truth. Shortly after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, uh, his followers were persecuted. They were scattered. You read, read through the book of Acts, and it doesn't take real long till they're scattered uh, because of the persecution that's going on. I want to draw your attention uh, to the end of verse 12. It says, Not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And uh, just what we saw, you know, last week, and, you know, we need to remember that God is working out his plan in his time. And something we can add to it this week, he is doing it with his people according to his word. Even though his people live in a world that seems dominated by a system and people that oppose and reject God. You know, to those with a true relationship with Christ, we will not be hidden because that relationship with Christ is lived out. And as we live it out, we glorify God, we honor Him, we draw attention to Him, to who He is, to His holiness, to His perfection, to His love, because we realize He is working out His plan in His time with His people according to His Word. You've done this what? So that the scripture may be fulfilled. His plan, his time, with his people and his word. God is not absent. He is not hiding. He wants us to know him. He wants us to grow in him. And we get to know him and grow in him as we listen to his word, as we get into his word, and as we pray and open our lives to him. We're going to pick up with the rest of this prayer for his disciples, verse 13, um, next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you 
are not surprised by what's going on. You are not wondering how we should act, how we should behave. You're not the least bit confused about the confusion in this world. Thank you for your stability. What you bring to life, what you give to life. We are forgiven and then not just left on our own. But you help us to know you more. You help us to grow in you. Help us to draw deeper in you. Father, make that real. Help us to know and understand a little bit more that you will work things out according to your plan and your time, not according to our schedule, not according to our wants and desires, but according to your truth. And you will do it with your people, and it will all be in accord with your word. Don't let us wander astray. Don't let us go off on our own. Don't let us follow false teachers, but to be drawn closer to you with each and every step we take, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.